Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of FT Alpha Chat. I'm Isabella Kaminska and today on the program we're going to be delving into the extremely serious world of film and movie criticism. Here's the backstory. Everyone knows FT Alpha are a bunch of econ and finance geeks. But as it happens, we're also a bunch of hyper movie nerds. So we thought, why not try and bring the two things together, take film criticism and finance, mesh them up and, well, come up with a sort of FT Alpha film review podcast. Who better to join me in this inaugural film review than uh, the FT's resident millennial philosophers, Thomas Hale and Gavin Jackson. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Let me explain who they are. So these guys, when they're not pre- preoccupied with their day jobs, tracking bond prices and interest rates on the market's desk, they spend, well, almost all their time debating each other about really weird, intricate things about the Industrial Revolution, spinning jennies, what would be the best uh, thing to invest in for for an apocalypse scenario? Is it potatoes or gold? Gold. (laughs) So I sit right next to them and um, I keep getting sucked into these debates and I thought I had to give them a platform because they are just incredible on that front. So... They're here today with us. And the film we are going to be reviewing is one that sort of, um, I would say, represents everyone in the room because I am Generation X, they're millennials. And we thought, well, why not? Let's let's do Tron because Tron, obviously, the first one was in 1982 and the second one was in 2010. Last weekend, I forced the guys to watch it and uh, they'd never seen it before. And now we're going to discuss it at length, but we're going to bring in economic and finance theory into the whole thing as well. So, Gavin, Tron 1, tell us about it. What what happens? Just a warning, there will be spoilers ahead throughout this podcast. So the the plot of the first one, um, Kevin Flynn is this uh, arcade owner who used to be a programmer for this company called Encom, and he designed two of the most successful games ever for this company that eventually made them rich. And he's trying to hack into this company's systems to get proof that he did invent them. Now, the boss of the company cottons onto that and shuts him out. So he's forced, well, his ex-girlfriend who works at the company and her friend at the company come and tell him that this is what's going on. She goes into the company to try and hack them from the inside and gets digitized and ends up inside the computer system. It's a whole CGI world. And within there, he has to play a sequence of gladiatorial games to stay alive. And then eventually overthrow the master control program who has taken over this system and turned it into a free system that works on behalf of the users. So, Tom, what did you think about the second one? Yeah, so Tron Legacy. So the hero of the first film, Flynn, goes missing in 1985, but he's got a son called Sam. And the film's a very similar film, but this time Sam gets sucked into the system and does battle against an evil artificial intelligence unit called clue so that's the basic outline but really i mean that's the superficial stuff that's happening for uh the everyday viewer who's who's is kind of watching it with with without much sort of contemplation over the underlying um themes but what was really like your first fe- like response to both films as a as a twin set like did you see um did you immediately make an associations with with what was going on say politically or economically or financially at the time well, they definitely reflected two different visions of the tech industry because in the first one, Kevin Flynn, this outsider hacker who, through his genius, has successfully created some programs that the, the corporate world then takes off him um, and he's campaigning for a free system and all that kind of stuff that the tech industry loved or still loves or claims to love anyway now. And then 30 years later, this has become quite a corporate establishment thing. His son essentially just has ownership just capital without any real creativity although we do see him hacking into the system to tell us that he's still got the skills his father does so it does it does sort of reflect that long arc of the optimism of the technology as a breakthrough a new economy uh, sort of freedom anti-totalitarianism the first one and the second one is is much more 
where that's bedded down into society and has become part of the establishment itself. It's something we take for granted that it'll be a big tech company. Yeah. As as a work of film, though, what did you think, um, Yeah, Tom? I, I thought that there was a huge difference between the two. The first film was kind of all over the place, very messy, quite creative, very, very difficult to follow or have any idea what's going on, and very unpolished, but quite original. The second film... Um, was extremely... My, my main takeaway from the second film was it was extremely polished and kind of a real product of 21st century Hollywood. And in that respect, the kind of transition from the first to the second film ironically kind of caught what the film tries to drive at, which is tech creativity grappling with corporate culture. Hmm. The, the the structure of the 2010 film seemed to reflect the way in which tech com- culture has in some ways succumbed to the corporate interest that it that it has you know is often associated with yeah i mean and and funnily enough so both films have also been produced by disney which feeds into the big corporate blockbuster world mm. um and undermines any like any of the philosophy of being a free and creative system and not privy to um controls or, or profits etc right mm. yeah absolutely so, let's explore some of the themes um Tell us about Tron and what he represents, uh, Gavin. What do you think? Well, Tron is is quite interesting. Tron, um, within the context of the outside world, the the corporate world, is this program that one of the prog- the programmers at the company designs to control the master control program. So one of the programmers called Alan Bradley designs a security program, Tron, which will regulate the master control program and make everything fine again in the system. Now, within the computer game, this is represented by a person who looks exactly like Alan Bradley in the outside world. If you see everything in the it, the computer world, maps to the outside world. And so, so the programs are sort of anthropomorphized exactly. um, yeah. versions of the real characters in the outside world, yes. right? Yeah. And in that system, he is an excellent fighter. He's really good at the gladiatorial games, and he always claims to be fighting for the users, where the the users are sort of individual gods or something that each of the programs has. So they all look like their user and also worship their user and want yeah. to communicate with their user. And and so it's... Isn't it also, if they have this religious belief in their user, this is the reason they're, they're forced to participate in these brutal... Yeah, there's, an un- there's a sort of, the punishment there's a sort of uh, yeah. religious um, persecution here because yeah. the system seems to be like an atheist yeah. system, and mm. so if you if you display a belief in the in the user, you are automa- automatically perceived to be some sort of anomaly in the system. You get yeah. to be forwarded to the games, right? Yeah, essentially, you're a threat to the system. Yeah, so Tron's a kind of prophet of the of the, the portion of the program community that still believes in the existence of users. Obviously, we as the viewer know the users exist. Yeah. But I would say he's more like a crusader, right? He fights for the users. He doesn't yeah. like preach their Yeah, that's true. Their principle. Yeah, yeah. You know. But let's let let's look at what maybe the writers were thinking about here. Mm. So one interesting thing is that when I watched this when when I was really little, obviously, and you guys have just watched it, but I never perceived this as being a version of The Wizard of Oz. And that when I was re- doing some research about the film, it turns out the writer did actually have The Wizard of Oz in mind. And you guys immediately came yeah. into this idea that it was a an equal kind of homage to The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that was my one of my f- first impressions from the film was this is basically just a tech version of The Wizard of Oz. So to explain how that is, where do you see the similarities? And, and, a, t- and a version of, you know, the classic genre of a story where there's a real world and there's some dream world or hidden world or magical world or, in this case, computer world. Um, and there's this parallel between the two worlds, which is obviously going on in The Wizard of Oz as well. So Flynn is like Dorothy. He comes in yeah. from the real world mm. in, in the original Wizard of Oz. Dorothy comes from a black and white environment. She's sucked into like Technicolor, and here you have exactly. Technicolor sucked into digital uh, binary uh, computer generated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and the Wizard of Oz also, I mean, on reflection, is probably more about artificial intelligence than we normally give it credit for. Explain. There, there is a. Yeah, I mean, they go on a journey to find the wizard. When they find him, he's this kind of robotic. He's the man behind the curtain, right? He's well, he, pulling he eventually is, but yeah. the, before you find out he's a man, right. he's a kind of robotic... Well, he's a giant... This a giant robot. I thought it was like um, The Wizard of Oz was because the Master Control Programme in Tron looks like a giant floating head, and that was always... That's, that's the Wizard of Oz. I remember yeah. The Wizard yeah. of Oz being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the thing with The Wizard of Oz, then you've got this, this disappointment in The Wizard of Oz that it's actually just a normal man behind the... 
the know, pull, pulling the strings yeah. behind the behind the the artificial intelligence or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and there's something going on with that in Tron as well, which is this idea that you've got these programs that are artificial intelligence, but actually behind each of these programs is a real person, is the user. The system itself is trying to deny the, mm. the this fact, but. Another interesting parallel, because let's, we want to talk about the economics here. So Wizard of Oz is extremely well known um, as an allegory for the uh, cross of gold, um, you know, crusade back in the populist movements in, of the 19th century in America. This was a time when America was gripped by depression, uh, when there was a big divide in the um, population about what was the best course of action, whether we should stay true to the gold standard, which was which many perceived, many believed this was shackling the economy. And then the others who wanted to set the economy free. And Dorothy's slippers were originally silver, and that was supposed to represent the flexibility of a silver standard versus versus the sort of um, mm. inflexible gold standard. So that's a really interesting parallel here, because obviously now the discussion is about setting yeah. the information free. Yes, yes. Yeah. What do you think in terms of um, that? Trans- I mean, that's quite a clever parallel, or do you think it's a bit naive? Is naive that that's their philosophy yeah, or the, 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 the producers of the film do you think that that was I mean for, uh, if you're watching it just as a spectator yeah. um, mm. you won't necessarily be understanding that do you think that's this yeah. hidden me- meaning is worth um, and do, do we give it any merit yeah basically? I think I think in the second in the 2010 Tron um, there's a big element about um, whether big highly profitable corporate corporations should be giving away their software for free but I didn't think there was much to do with the economic... I thought it was there was a missed opportunity to link it to the economic context. Do you think? Because I, I really currencies. read it as... Um, I really read it as all about free systems versus closed systems. The first one or the second one? Both of them. Both. I, th- I think there's an important... like Because uh, so, one of the other points is that in the, the first one was done in 1982, which was the sort of the beginning of the neoliberalist age when we were... Reagan had just come into power in 1981. Yeah. Uh, he was making his, you know, all his big uh, speeches about small government, government being better. Yeah. And I saw Tron 1 as um, complementing that philosophy that we don't want big government, we don't want the market to control program everything should be free free is better yeah but by the time of 2010 there is a bit of a um recognition that maybe free isn't always the best that's sometimes free go because the irony in the second one right is that flynn has recognized that um if you let things be free they tend to self-organize into oppressive tyrannical forms anyway well well, i think that the the first one definitely i think that's Definitely true that it's all about freedom of information. It's sort of, you can read it as anti-totalitarian. So they want, you know, the master control program is totalitarian government of the system who wants to suppress religion. And then Flynn is the crusading entrepreneur who wants to disrupt it and make it free for the user and displace, you know, the the power that's be. The second one, I think, also has that totalitarian message. But the key thing is that Flynn himself has created that totalitarianism. In the second one, because this program Clue, that's the the antagonist in the 2010 film, is looks exactly like Flynn did uh, when he was younger, and he was created by Flynn to make the perfect system. Very similar messages. It's just that the source of the problem is no longer someone else, but the tech entrepreneurs themselves, the the creatives and the disruptors that they create these bad systems. Yeah, I thought the second one also. If you if you think through the plot of the second one basically what's happened is tech genius creates brilliant company that becomes the biggest company in the world goes missing because he's too much of a genius to function in the real world um his son is also kind of quite wild and doesn't really participate or play by the corporate game the company's been taken over by all these kind of technocrats who just want to make profit and then eventually at the end of the film the resolution is that the the true born heir of the company Sam regains the throne or regains the title. It's almost like a kind of monarchy where you've got to inherit your right to 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 oversee this corporate empire. It's like an initiation of some kind that, like, yeah. he comes full circle and he proves Arthurian sort of. Yeah, Arthurian. but yeah. It, but also also kind of <clears throat> divine right of kings. It, it doesn't seem to play into an idea of freedom or openness. It seems to play into an idea that you inherit 
or the other the companies stay within families. Yeah, yeah. So ra- rather than um, you know this meritocratic. So one one interesting thing in the film. So there are a few things that I I picked up on that I thought were very interesting. So in 2010 we have the son being the main shareholder and he's not on the board, which is like. In terms of what happens with Apple and Steve Jobs, it's almost like a mirror of that in so much as Steve Jobs was on the board, he got booted out. Here we have this like massive corporate interest firm. The the creative genius is already not on the board. Yeah. Like it's 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 a, it's a nod to Steve Jobs. Mm. Is it like Batman? I don't is he know. On the board? I don't I I'm not I feel like he's not on the board. In which Batman uh, film? In, in the, the most recent Batman film. I just We have to fact check that, but I just feel like Batman... I, I did think when I was watching the film, when he was jumping off buildings and whatever at the beginning, there was a kind of, you know, billionaire to... superhero element to Sam. But then that, that scene where he's jumping off the building, I think, I think is also somewhat ironic in so much as he's there giving away the free content and he's saying, you know... Um, so he's broken into Encon, he's stolen the content, he's giving it away for free in a, in a nod to Mark Andreessen, say, and Netscape. Yeah. And yet he jumps down, lands on a taxi, and the taxi driver is saying, no, you didn't pay your fare, you have to pay your fare, no free ride, no free ride. And I thought that was very interesting because yeah. it's sort of like he's giving away stuff for free, but then the reality of the real world with the taxi driver mm. is reminding him there is no such thing as a, a, as a free ride. Exactly, especially if you're a taxi... I mean, basically... Especially if well, you're a taxi yeah, if you, driver. So if you, if you inherit a tech empire yeah. worth billions, it's very easy to give things away for free. Yes. Whereas if you're a struggling taxi driver, where people are falling out of the sky on your... So that's a really nice little commentary, I think. It's almost it's almost um, a critique of the tech industry. I think that 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 it's almost like somebody like still grounded to reality snuck that in, no. Mm. And then obviously in the first one, I thought it was quite interesting that he um, again the corporate structure is based around the whole concept of copyright, right? Yes. And so he's there, this hacker who wants to build a free system, but yet he's obsessed with regaining control of his copyright, and in the end. The company is, you know, becomes this multi-billion-dollar company based on his ability to prove his intellectual property, you know, claim to this yeah. to these games. That's paradoxical as well, no? Well, I, I sort of saw that as him being a labourer that was exploited. Right? He came up with the idea. He was like an artist or whatever who who had the idea for these games. Somebody who's a corporate interest took that idea and monetized it, and then he's trying to claim it back. But then in the in the second one, his son doesn't do anything. Yeah, he just, his son ev- does nothing. Yeah, he's just a rentier. He just owns. But he lives. I mean, he he demonstrates this cliche tech living. He lives in a garage. Yes, you know, yeah. there's there's all this sort of Silicon Valley. Uh, you know. I guess it's like a satirical take of the stereotypical Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and yeah. yet he's an, he's not really an entrepreneur. He's just someone, as you say, who's inherited it all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you get a brief glimpse into Sam's childhood, where his dad's reading him the kind of tech version of bedtime stories, which is just teaching him acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Because he kind of says he's telling him the story of Tron, and he says, "So then I created Clue and." This like eight-year-old son just goes, "What? What is clue again? Codified lightness, utility." And he's like, pats him on the head. He's kind of like, "Well done, son." Like, kind of like that's your initiation into the world of being like a tech heir is memorizing acronyms at the so, age of eight. So that's a very interesting point. Was that when I was looking through the archives about um, uh, trying to find the initial reviews of the first film, a lot of the reviewers thought that the uh, film was full of jargon and yeah. that was one of the the early critiques and and I found it quite interesting because I remember watching it the first time and being befuddled by all the sort oh, of yeah. tech stuff but you guys as millennials have watched a- the 80s film and you didn't walk away with, with the impression that it was full of tech jargon so it just shows you how far we've come oh, no? I don't know, I mean I I struggled I've got to say I struggled to follow the first film but what did you think of the some of the kind of techie jokes in it like... oh, I, I didn't mind i mean I, I i'm i'm a bit more nerdy than tom um and i, I did like the, the little bit you know it, it can only say yes yes or no because it can only be positive or negative and bits are binary so they can only be one or zero so i actually like that kind of stuff but then you know i possibly more than tom have messed around with yeah i probably missed that joke yeah messed around with computer programs and stuff like that so I, to me it made sense but then i have grown up with that sort of stuff and it did seem you know perfectly easy to me but then the second one didn't have any of that 
despite yeah. the fact that tech is a much bigger part of our lives, it was much more keen to be more accessible. Yeah, I mean, we were actually discussing whether this was because they've written it out of the script to some extent or whether we just don't notice, you know, it's become so normalised that the, the, the tech jargon now, we don't hear it as jargon, mm. whereas in the 80s we still hear it as jargon. But, I, I mean, that could be true, but I genuinely did feel like there was no jargon in the second film. In the first film, I found it um, not overly jargony, but I found it very difficult to follow, mainly because the whole film, large sections of the film just looked like a screensaver. <laughs> yeah, and tell I, us about your screensaver Which was a big theory. issue, because, well, before watching this film, I'd forgotten about the existence of screensavers. I really don't know why they existed. When I was kind of 12, 13, I was told screensavers existed to stop computers blowing up when you're not using them, which I believed. <laughs> what, because, like, what, explain your rationale, because I didn't understand that at first, but it's, so the pixels didn't burn into the screen. Yeah, yet, I mean, right? if you're using a kind of a desktop computer in the late 90s, every single one of them had a, a screensaver, and the main screensaver was this kind of Tron. It was basically clearly designed by a fan of Tron, and it was kind of one of those racing game scene bits where i mean basically the whole landscape of that universe just looked like that screensaver so that's that's a very interesting point because funnily enough um for me i thought you know tron was a huge influence on the tech world um i thought you know as you say the screensavers kind of evoke the tron look mm, yeah and yet when i met whenever i I, I like to talk about Tron because I find it very interesting about you know all these sort of parallels with the Cross of Gold and stuff. But um, when I meet tech entrepreneurs today, like really high profile ones, and you ask them if they've seen Tron, they haven't seen Tron, yeah. and I find that quite shocking. Now, tell me, what did you think in the first Tron of the kind of um, types of programs that were being bonded into the gladiatorial system? Because they were they seemed to all be somewhat financial. Do you it think did, that was strategic? Yeah. I don't know where there was because I couldn't see any much of a connection between between the financial stuff and a lot of the other stuff. But there was two I remember. One of them was an annuities program called RAM, I think it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's another one I have in my notes with Crom, who did compound interest for savings and loans. Now, from looking at the context, this was out in 1982. That is around the same time as the savings and loans crisis. So you can see these sort of financial economic interests bleeding into the film and giving it this kind of, I, I guess, with the... I'm not sure how it much really influenced the plot, but it is there as background context. Well, I, I, thinking back to 1982, computers were not yet um, mass market. They were yes. mainly deployed in business, so in finance. And uh, really, the only interaction that the mass market had with computers was through gaming i would say mm. i would argue that the kind of um the you know pac-man type games uh, that you would play in in gaming halls were, were really the main um connection people would have yeah. so um it makes sense that they would focus on these two types of like the gaming and the finance because yeah. you wouldn't have had necessarily like any so, perception of the internet. So the, you mean that people would see computers as essentially just computational tools for finance rather than, you know, if you did it now, maybe you'd have a streaming program or, you know, a music playing program or something where it's more complicated. I just think it's very interesting that what was pe perceived to be uh, a finance or industry tool and a gaming tool um, was at this time when Tron was coming out on the very precipice of becoming a mainstream tool, right? In two years' time, 1984, we were going to get the very big ad from Apple, the one where they take on the Big Brother idea and the Apple Mac represents the computer becoming a, a tool for the everyday person, right? Yeah. And in the trailer to Tron... Um, I mean, it's very reminiscent of that big brother um, control system. We don't want to end up in that world. And Steve Jobs was very much playing off that. And it's very interesting because um, Alan Kay happens to be uh, the key technical advisor to the makers of Tron. And Alan Kay is a, is a really well-known technologist and, and computer programmer. And he... In fact, he's the father of something called object-oriented programming, and I, I'm not enough of a geek, Gavin. Maybe you you understand that stuff, but um, but generally speaking, I do know that he was a big influence on Steve Jobs, and I believe Steve Jobs um, took the work of 
Alan Kay, especially on the interface stuff, and applied it to the Mac. So I thought that was an interesting parallel. And Alan Kay was also... He, he was so heavily involved in this project that in the end he ended up marrying the, the screenwriter, yeah. uh, Bonnie McBride. She actually is his wife now and they're still, they're still married to this day. Um, so I thought that was very interesting because it really resonates with this idea that there was a paranoia around 1982 mm. working up to this moment where the computer was going to go mass market would it be used for good or would it be used for bad and bad was like perceived to be this controlling corporate structure that was going to stifle human creativity and good was going to be a free system where uh, everybody who um, had the opportunity to interact with these tools could use them to empower themselves yeah and in working in the interests of of the users yeah and one interesting thing is that uh, in the film, there's a character, Alan Bradley, I said before, who in the computer world is kind of like it's Tron, who obviously fights for the users. And it's kind of interesting that his name's Alan Bradley and Alan Kay was, you know, this figure who was involved in the film and involved in this object-oriented programming and went on to work at Apple. Right. Well, so, he did. Yeah, he worked at Apple. Yeah. So he, he is the Alan. He is the... Uh, Tron is Alan Kay, right? I, I guess that's part of the idea, that that they were influenced by this guy as this, you know hacker who wanted to, or programmer who wanted to make it all work in the interest of the users. I mean, isn't the second film also openly critiquing Apple because the system they create is called OS 12, mm. which sounds quite Apple-like. And it's, and, it's, and it's the most profitable company ever. And by like the time Apple of the is. second film, there is this acknowledgement that the free system didn't work. We ended up with a corporate nightmare anyway. Innovation has stalled. So they're only putting like number 12 yeah exactly. that's, that's that great line yeah, um, yeah what he, where he asked him what exactly have you done to improve this yeah we put a 12 we on put it. a 12 on the box, yeah. <laughs> it's a good it's a good quote and so innovation has stalled the system is as stifled as it ever was so well not quite because there is there's this character Cora as well in the second one who's played by olivia wilde i think only the second woman in the whole two films but yeah. um and she is some sort of algorithmically generated person or something. Isomorph. Isomorph, yeah, who spontaneously existed within the system. So it stops being about the actions of the programmers and starts being spontaneously generated. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that the great breakthrough Flynn had with Clue, which was that um, there are a wave of algorithmic isomorphs and then Clue, Clue destroyed wiped them all, them all out? Yeah, because they were... So exactly. Clue, Clue has a problem with... Perf- like he has a problem with flaws and imperfections. So yeah. he's, and in that sense, like he really represents the kind of hyper tech nerd, right? Who who doesn't understand nuance or grey sort of areas in in in, in anything. Just Everything wants is efficiency binary. and perfection. Efficiency and per- exactly. Yeah. Um. So I thought that was a very interesting turning point because that is very different to the first film, where there is still this optimism that the computer world can achieve creative systems in a binary structure. Whereas by the second one, you have Jeff Bridges essentially recognising that mm, binary stuff isn't going to work. We need, we need what, we, what we're interested in is what sort of new entities are spawned from the chaos and the complexity of these systems. And here come the isomorphs, which happen, and I'm not, an expert in computer theory at all, but I understand that there is some sort of isomorphic stuff in object-oriented, pro- or at least in Alan Kay's work, there was mm. some recognition of these sorts of um, complex systems that are also, um, they're mirrors of our own intelligence, but they, they're just spawned from a different source. So they tend to like be compatible in many different ways, but when you break apart their DNA, they're resilient. You know, Cora dies in the, well, she doesn't die. All the other kind of, the goons of Clue's um, Praetorian Guard, um, when when they get hit even slightly, they just shatter, right? That is yeah. extremely brittle mm. structure. Whereas Cora has this underlying complexity to her DNA. When she gets hit, her arm falls off, but she doesn't die. And uh, Flynn is able to then manipulate her DNA and just take out the floor. And then, she, you know, it takes over and she's fine. She reboots, right? Yeah, yeah. So Flynn's, in the second film, comes around to the idea of imperfection being beautiful, etc., etc., uh, but did he ever? Was he ever in favour of perfection in the first film? At the start of the second one, he tells Clue to create the perfect system, right? Which is 
he creates Clue, which is the whole point, is that the guy who was once the great hacker is now the source of the bad system. And then that's what makes it. Yeah. yeah. But maybe not in the first one. In the second one, at least, he, he is obsessed with perfection. Yeah. So I think there is also a major kind of religious undertone to the whole thing, right? Flynn is almost a messianic figure. He's come from another world. He's materialized. You know, there's a lot of references to son of son of Flynn. And, um, yeah. And, you know, there's so there there are these kind of Christian-esque, also Buddhist-esque um, yeah. parallels I thought, all throughout. Yeah, I thought it was heavily Christian. If, I mean, if you think about what Clue is, Clue is the son also of Flynn. I thought you could you could see the second film as a competition between two brothers, Clue, who is a kind of son of Flynn, and Sam, who's a real son of Flynn. And it's, there's almost a kind of prodigal son element where Sam is this son who hasn't participated in anything or helped Flynn with any of this. Mm. And when it comes to the end and they have that standoff, and he sides with Sam, who's the prodigal son. He kind of screams, but I did everything you asked. Just like in the Bible, the prodigal son, mm. the, 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 the loyal son, um, protests and is furious and enraged and loses his mind when the prodigal son is welcomed back. I thought there was some, some of that going on there. Well, another way of thinking about it in the second one is the sort of Lucifer is the fallen angel, is clue, and then Sam is almost more of a Jesus figure, right? He's the actual son of... Yeah, the creator who is them, but that's that one. And the promise is to go to like the real world, right? Exactly. This is to ascend. ascend yeah. to, well, I mean, and you see them literally ascend at the end. Yeah, and but then in, in both of them as well, Flynn at the end of them sacrifices himself. You know, he jumps into the master control program to distract it for trying to kill it, and he's like giving himself up to save the system. And the second one as well, he he sort of he gives away his key back to the real world in order to save Sam and Quora. And sacrifice himself again. So he's, again, that notion of the Messiah sacrificing himself to save everybody else. Yeah. Is that. So I, what I find interesting here is that um, tech is obviously, you know, perceived from the outside as, as a very logical, atheist-type movement, right? You wouldn't consider it being mystic and, and religious. Mm. And yet, in recent years, we have seen a lot of kind of pseudo-religious ideas coming out of the space there is this whole idea of the rapture of the nerds and this idea that we can uh cheat death like death is hackable like we can we can disrupt death we can all be uploaded to the cloud we can take our brain patterns and replicate Mm. them in computers and live forever right and this becomes extremely religious like you almost want richard dawkins to come in here and 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 tell (laughs) tell these people that they're slightly going off you know onto a crazy plane right or what do you think of that it's straightforward tech utopianism i mean both of the films in their own way Um, i mean as soon as he gets out in the second film as soon as he gets out of this of the system and is back into the real world Cora turns to him and says what we're going to do now and he says I guess we're going to save the world there's this kind of continuous apocalyptic struggle against some mm. some so- source of absolute evil um, there's you know continual form- forms of dissent and ascension and there's this belief that tech has the power to kind of redeem yeah to solve people crises yeah and then there's this belief in the AI um, and that in it, I, I see the isomorphs as a sort of emergent um, intelligence, right? Yes. And I see this perhaps as a sort of, in the tech mind, as, as, as a sort of um, a responsibility shifting scenario. So they they want to communicate the idea that if something bad happens with their technology they are not responsible this is a this is a spontaneous emergence of ai it's nothing to do with us it's creative and therefore um if you and if you apply that to the real world of course it becomes interesting because in the real world um corporations have liabilities if they Mm. create a program that runs wild and then creates skynet one would think they would have a lawsuit coming (laughs) yeah one i'm always obsessed by is is driverless cars who who pays the insurance premiums is it google who programmed the thing or is it the person who who buys the car because the person that's made the decision is google you know when when they chose to put whatever they did into it well we see this in news as well right it's i mean you know if you have algorithms that say google news that select what the best news stories are based on algorithmic metrics that's not simply an objective reflection of of news judgment 
there's a form of judgment on behalf of the people programming the algorithm to decide mm. how they weight the different factors in their algorithm. So you've just moved the human agency back one step, which is a similar thing happens in both these Tron films. That's also The Wizard of Oz. Right? Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's almost is the joke on us then. Is this like, is this a sub, is there a subtext here that um, we're going to go out and create these algorithms and we're going to make you think they're naturally emergent and we're not going to have any liabilities, mm. but haha, in reality, we're doing the Wizard of Oz thing here. But the man behind the curtain yes. is Google, effectively. Right. Yeah, or and- some some engineer at Google, but you can't, it's, it's, it's unusually difficult to find out who these people are now. And, but, and do you think they're consciously playing with us here? This is a sort of like, uh, we'll use the medium of film to present these ideas like on one there are different layers to the story so you walk away with the top superficial layer you, you you're scared about ai but you're also quite compassionate maybe because cora's quite a nice person right she, yeah. she's friendly with the human but then when you unpick it further and further and, and you analyze that it's wizard of oz and you go well maybe maybe this cora figure isn't really who she says she is maybe she's just the product of google as we are you know or the yeah. product of, of Flynn, at least in the film, and the world he created. So I wanted to just bring in the idea of digital identity because they're running around everywhere yes. with these discs, and these discs are also the 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 tool they use to fight everybody. Mm. What do you think that signifies? Well, my initial thought was that because these tools are sort of they're a digital trail of everything they do in the world, they create their they store their identity and their history, and and within this context of like this totalitarian system. I was thought of them as sort of an ego or identity that you reassert your sense of self against the conformity by throwing your identity at it. It's, it's like the Apple 1984 commercially mentioned, where they're reasserting their identity against the conformist system. It's how I understood it anyway. Uh, and seeing that now in a, with my modern eyes, this is 1980s obviously, but that is like Facebook or our phones, you know, where we do have these digital exhaust trails going behind us that create ourselves and which we store ourselves in and our identity in. You made an interesting point about how every time they use these discs, they do so in a very macho way. Yeah, yeah. Because Tron is this part of kind of techie, nerdy culture, and it's part of that whole legacy, and part of that culture is a rejection of kind of macho approaches to things, and instead, you know, you're you're virtuous because of your intellect or because of your programming skills. Given all that... I found it highly ironic that all of the action that takes place in the film is an, openly an endorsement of kind of macho culture. So you've got the sort of disc throwing, you've yeah. got the, the bike, I mean, it's fris- it's frisbee. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, most of the film is, the first film is about frisbee, it seems to be, and yeah. motorbike racing, and also hand-to-hand combat. Mm. I mean, that's a large part of the film is hand-to-hand combat. So basically what you've got is you've got these programmers or so-called nerds who enter into this parallel universe in which they participate in, um, in which they're able to be the best in the world at mm. these things that they don't do on the outside world. So rather than celebrating some alternate set of virtues, they're actually implicitly endorsing the virtues that they that they are supposed to be rejecting. Mm. So it's, again, quite hypocritical in that sense. Yeah, it's hypocritical. I mean, especially in the second film, the 2010 film, where... Everyone cast in the film looks like a professional athlete. Um, oh, especially model stroke athlete. Model stroke athlete. Yeah. They're kind of running around. They're incredibly athletic. Um, if this is a celebration of tech culture and the, the culture of the kind of intellectual programmer, it seems to be a bit of a betrayal of that legacy. You reminded me of the South Park episode um, where they have a go at Tron um, and yeah. they kind of connect it to the whole Facebook profile thing. Yeah, so this is a brilliant episode of South Park called You Have Zero Friends, where I think it's Stan gets addicted to Facebook, tries to build his profile. Then I think he tries to um, delete his Facebook and he can't because the system rejects this and the system sucks him in and he's in this Tron-like world, but it's actually in Facebook. And to, to the earlier point about, you know, all these macho gladiatorial games they had, in the South Park version, they settle all disputes in the world of Tron by playing Yahtzee. And, and you know, the, the final scene is the the MCP playing a game of Yahtzee against Stan, and he just instantly gets Yahtzee, and it's just the end of the whole, you know, it's all done. Yeah. Which I thought was a brilliant kind of satire of the, the, the way in which, again, this tech utopia is dominated by 
basically athletics and sport. But also in tracking ultimately identity, like and and making you have a complex if you have no digital friends, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah turning oh, the into, Facebook, yeah, the, fa- the the South Park episode, yeah. turning it into a game essentially. Yeah. yeah, a mix of a game and a market. Right. Which yeah, dates yeah. back to the finance and games, which are the original episode. Well, so there's another scene in that South Park episode where there's a kind of parody of a stock market report, but instead of stocks going up and down, it's friends going up and down, and Cartman's going through various people and how many friends they've got and he's saying you should you should make friends with this person because they've just gained five friends in the last day you should delete this person because they've lost 10 friends in the last day which yeah i mean it just reflects how again it's about financial markets so everything can be turned into a currency is essentially the idea and identity is identity and data are the new currency here and it's connections with other sort of entities in that system that that, Mm. you know you get you gain power i mean your fa- your profiles become the most powerful in all of Facebook, and um, it's it it resonates with the idea of of what what the master control program is saying. You know, if if you, if you've got these identity disks and they're they're full of connections and complexity, you become the most powerful in that system, right? Yeah, and and that skills within the system have begun to surpass skills outside of the system. I also find it paradoxical, again, because Flynn is supposed to be this off-grid entity, yet he has the disc on him all the time as well. So he's living... The second one. Yeah. yeah. And so he he lives in this little compound, off-grid, which is... um, We should probably just describe Flynn's living conditions in the second film, because it's very... It's much very strange. It, it's very much like the Stanley Kubrick 2001 um, final scene of the... Um, ages of man scene where yeah. he lives in this white pristine environment with i guess the furniture comes from all sorts of different decades so you have uh, rococo chairs and uh, old-fashioned victorian bijou jewelry stuff jewelry boxes etc mm. um and it's very clean pristine and bright and white and flynn's habitat is exactly the same yeah. and he has this library of philosophy yeah. philosophy books um so what i mean is that that that's a nod to ai right because in 2001 that's when hal goes mad and we see the transition of hal to the next epoch and the big child, star child, baby is a symbol for the emergence of AI or some well, sort of higher consciousness. Well, in this one, that, that that the core character is sort of evolution idea that something generates in the next level sort of thing from the computer yeah. system. So it's, that's a very idea that they use in 2001 as well. Who, who he's living with. Exactly, who lives in this white, pristine space with him. Yeah. Deep man, or as Flynn would say... Digital DNA. I mean, he, he's funny. He's the dude all the way through it, right? Oh, yeah. From, the, from um, no, he says biodigital bio jazz. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, they play on that because it's, Jeff Bridges is, is Kevin Flynn all the way through, but in the second one, he very much is playing the dude. He meditates, doesn't he, at one point? Yeah, well, what? he basically plays a character who, you know, is quite funny and cool, but abandoned his son. <laughs> yes. And ab- abandoned his entire family. <laughs> yeah. Uh, effectively orphaned his son so he could go and live in a luxury this luxury abandoned kind of tech house in the system but, think, and, and do nothing for 20 he does nothing for 20 years but it, the son abandonment stuff well child abandonment again that's that echoes with steve jobs no i mean his failure to recognize his his daughter for a very long time and there is this funny kind of mm. parallel there, yeah no? and also the whole disappear you know you go into the wilderness and then you come back more powerful than ever. although flynn doesn't come back he he just dies. gets absorbed by the but, system. He gets sucked into Facebook yeah. forever yeah, he does. and but, ever. But he has a kind of triumphant final moment. So, okay, so we've we've spoke about all aspects of this for a while now, but what, what are really the takeaway key points? Now, for me, we've talked about religion, philosophy, AI, the Californian ideolo- ideology of the perfect system and, and why information wants to be free. But really, I also think it's a, it's an allegory for America. I think America mm. is the new kind of frontier land. And it has well, it a was land the of, old frontier land. Well, it, yeah. So, yeah. So it was, back in the day, it was the land of opportunity where we could we could create a perfect system. And it was all going to be, per, it, you know, anything was possible. And then... Um, 
it it kind of went wrong. It wasn't as perfect as we thought it would be. But here's our second chance. We can create the America that we wanted to really create in the real world in the digital sphere. The digital frontier, as, as someone calls it. Yes, exactly. And yet there's also this recognition, and I think um, by Flynn, that you cannot create utopia without some sort of ethics or morality or religion right so the quote that comes to my mind is the edmund burke quote it's a, it's he's um a contemporary of the founding fathers he has very famously said that liberty does not exist in the absence of morality and i really think the film that's the message of the film that we we can have a perfect system but you can't have freedom creativity and order without some commitment to a higher cause of some sort. That's mm. that's for me the takeaway. What what about you? Well, for me, the takeaway was was more the idea that things inevitably decay, and that you have some dream that goes through a cycle of fighting against the insurgents. You come over, you take off, you gradually become the establishment, and then you see your own flaws. It's like the idea, it's like the it's about fathers and sons, right? That you become your own father. You know that you're, you, the generations pass on their failures to the next one. So, and to me, that was the big takeaway. And that we're not going to create a perfect system. Whatever we do, there will still be failures, even if you have morality. I've got a much more lowbrow <laughs> interpretation of these two films, which I, I mean, I'm just going to quickly read um, a news bulletin <laughs> from the film. Which this is from the beginning of the second film. This is a news bulletin, which I think says a lot about. The relationship between the media and the tech industry. And it, it goes like this. Good evening. Our lead story. Encom CEO and video game icon Kevin Flynn has disappeared. He was best known for designing Tron and Space Paranoids, the two best-selling video games in history. Flynn took ownership of Encom in 1982 as the company skyrocketed to the top of the tech industry. But things changed in 85 with the untimely death of Flynn's wife, the mother of his young son, Sam. Recently, Encom board members have been troubled by reports of Flynn's erratic, even obsessive behaviour. With Flynn missing, the company is now in chaos. This afternoon, Encom's board moved to seize control from Flynn's partner, Alan Bradley, vowing to return the company to profitability. Loyal to the end, Bradley maintained his belief that Flynn is not missing, as in instead pursuing his dream of a digital frontier to reshape the human condition. I mean, it's a brilliant news report because it, it just abandons all pretense of being the news about halfway through and just goes into this made-up narrative about how, you know, about basically the psychology of the CEO and his kind of world-changing ambitions. Similarly, his son, the final thing his son says is, I guess we'd better save the world. I think a lot of people in the tech industry genuinely do believe, rightly or wrongly, they're going to save the world in some way. And just listening to that media bulletin in the second film, which I don't think was meant to be satirical in any way at all it made me think that the film perhaps highlighted ways in which we might have overstated the relevance of certain aspects of the tech industry i mean for example this film is about a video game company i mean video games are important (laughs) but i I was never video games are very important but i was never exactly clear of the link between the the video game of tron and the broader extent to which these computer systems and processes um are going to end up controlling the world. Gavin's mentioned earlier there were these brief hints, these brief glimpses of what these films could have been, which is a delving into the relationship, the interplay between the way tech and computer systems work in social lives and work in financial markets. But they didn't end up really doing that. There's just this kind of this 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 huge weight given to the importance of computers and gaming. But I, think that, life, that I think that I think reflects the culture of a certain. Or maybe maybe life is a game. But I think I guess it's hard to make a, a, a an exciting film about Excel spreadsheets, right? You know, computer <laughs> or games. Compound are, interest rate programs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Computer games are a spectacle, at least. And if you want to film, yeah, they are. They are. And um, yeah, and there is this sort of like game theory side of it that it, it's evolutionary. Game theory, games, from the perspective of the tech evolutionary point of view is everywhere game games are in finance in our day-to-day interactions so it makes kind of some sense i think to make it all about games i know it's trivial but maybe maybe pac-man will be the you know the for me the key skill in future life that i acquired as a young girl it's 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 i don't think it's the problems that the games are trivial 
it's more the problem that the way in which system, computer systems work in gaming and the the kind of philosophical political themes that emerge, like particularly competition, selfishness, ruthlessness, mm. strict hierarchies yes, of competence, as for example, Tron is Tron is the best in the world at. But you see, this Whatever. totally resonates for me with HFT and, and algorithmic trading. And nowadays, there are all these unilateral programs running around the system, interacting with each other, and they are trying to... They're basically staging the Tron games, but yeah. in in what is the financial system. And so the winner and loser algorithms are the ones that belong to the winner uh, winning hedge funds or the winning banks or whatever right? yeah I, I think that i think that's weirdly prophetic yeah it is there's definitely a link there i think the get i mean the, one of the beauty of games is you have this closed system you have a clear notion of when you've won and when you haven't mm. and and the problem with you know it is it is true that people might treat financial markets like a game but it it's not true that it's clear cut who's won and who's lost i feel well, like it makes most money right uh, yeah but i mean is that yeah, I feel like we've just got to the core of what Tron is really about, and we've just run out. We're running out of time now, so I think on that deep note, we're going to have to wrap it up. It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Tom, and it's goodbye from Gavin. So take goodbye. care. Goodbye. <laughs> hey everyone, Cardiff Garcia here, and we will be back next week with your regularly scheduled Alpha Chat programming. We do hope that you enjoyed Izzy's deep dive into the financial and economic principles explored in the Tron movies. Now, as Izzy mentioned, this is something new, and we'd love to know what you think and maybe what other movies you'd like for Izzy and her crew to tackle. So send us an email at alphachat at ft.com, or you can give us a call at 917-551-5012 for our overseas listeners. That is the U.S. number, and that's country code PLUS1. You can also find us on Twitter. Izzy is at Iza Kaminska, and I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks, as always, to producer and editor Amy Keene, who is so great that you might think she is herself a computer simulation, but in fact, she is real, and we all get to benefit from that. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.